Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your hosts, Chris Jennings and Dr. Mike Brazier. On this episode, we're going to be joined again by our special guest from California, Mike Casadza with USGS, Western Ecological Research Center. We're going to continue our conversation on radio telemetry and its application to uh, understanding waterfowl. Uh, Mike has been involved in telemetry research for a number of years, and Mike has uh, graciously agreed to, to, to join us again on this episode. And so here in studio, I have my co-host, Chris Jennings, and then on the phone joining us from California is Mike Katsadzo. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Mike, and uh, good to talk to, to both you and Chris. We, we left off the last episode uh, having basically covered everything from when we started using telemetry uh, to study waterfowl, uh, talking about the sensors incorporated in, in these different in these transmitters, uh, what hunters should do if they recover those transmitters. So that, and, and we could have continued on with that conversation for another half hour, uh, but we had to leave out some, uh, some aspects so we can move on to another topic. And, and we wanted to ask you, because we know you've been involved in a lot of this research, we wanted to get you to share some insights with our listeners so they can really see the type of questions that, that can be answered and how they're answered, just to understand a little bit more of the details behind the research that goes into this. So uh, very briefly, uh, maybe to start off, uh, from, a, from a big picture view, what are the most common research questions that, we, that we've used telemetry to answer, both from a breeding season as well as non-breeding season? Yeah, so, um, I mean, obviously telemetry can be a great tool to answer a lot of different questions. Um, the Kind of the, the big three are movement, um, so that includes like local movements. Um, you can see where, where birds are going uh, to and from, and migratory movements included in that movement section. So movements uh, and then survival. Uh, so we have a, a individual that's radio marked, so we know um, what's going on with that individual uh, during the time period that we're able to track it, and so we call that a, kind of a, a known fate, so we can understand what's uh, affecting that bird's survival. And then the other um, is habitat use. So those are the three big um, topic areas of telemetry really allow for a lot of insight. You mentioned on the previous episode that the state of California and maybe some other partners began investing a uh, fair amount of resources here recently uh, in, in using radio telemetry to answer some questions of interest out there in, in your region. Uh, introduce us to that, uh, to, to what it is that, that you're doing. What's wrapped up in all of that, uh, that thought and the, the type of questions you're answering? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, telemetry is a tool that allows us to learn so much more about um, the resource that we're interested in. And and so out here in California, you know, the the Pacific Flyway, the Central Valley of California is is really the, the heart of the wintering area for the Pacific Flyway. And we, you know, millions of birds spend their winter here. And uh, we really have a great, it's, it's really, it's been a pleasure to work with all of our partners. And we've got, you know, from Ducks Unlimited uh, California Waterfowl, uh, the, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, Department, California Department of Water Resources, and down to the local level, um, and Fish and Wildlife Service. You know, everybody's working together to to make sure that we're providing that wintering habitat primarily for waterfowl in the Central Valley, 
And then as well as the, the breeding habitat in the summertime, uh, California has a significant amount of that. And uh, it's, it's just been great to work with such a great um, uh, collaborative team out here to, to try and answer these questions. And telemetry is allowing us to, to learn even more. And, and so um, specifically, uh, the, the work we're doing right now is like hitting on all of those topics with all these partners and we're um, utilizing this advanced in tech, advancement in technology to, um, to, to get at those questions and be more efficient with the limited conservation dollars that are out there. Preparing for this podcast, we exchanged uh, – this episode, we exchanged a few emails, and you, you shared with us some articles that have resulted from the research, one of which dealt with some really fine-scale uh, habitat use. We'll get, to that, get into that in a minute, but you shared a publication with me that I – that I had not seen yet. It was maybe from, I don't know if it's earlier this year or what, but it, it spoke about how you use this, uh, the new GPS, GSM, uh, this high spatial resolution um, location data to estimate flight speed of different waterfowl species. So uh, that's a topic that I'm sure is going to be of interest. We always have a piece in the, in the magazine about you know, some sort of quiz about how fast waterfowl fly. And, but you've actually, for the, first, for the first time in many, many years, put some additional data to that question. So uh, tell us a little about that. Yeah, well, the, the, uh, the really uh, great thing about these new transmitters, you, you get locations much more frequently. Uh, so you can get locations, you know, every 15 or 30, uh, even uh, – you know, every 30 minutes, um, even faster than that, uh, depending on the on the battery level of the transmitter. So, it allows us to to monitor how fast the bird's moving, for instance, from point A to point B. And uh, you know, a lot of the a lot of the literature, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. We just thought, well, a lot of the literature shows the flight speed, um, and a lot of it's recorded from just guys out in their in their pickup trucks driving alongside uh, birds that are flying and, and writing down how fast you know they were going uh, and how you know whether the birds were keeping up or not uh, and it, it's, it's coming back from like even you know back to the 40s and 50s um, and so this new technology we thought well this is really uh, great because we can actually you know with a lot more certainty um, determine you know how fast these birds are moving and we can look at when they're migrating versus when they're making local movements, say within you know within the valley here, uh, or you know on their on their trip to uh, for a pintail maybe up to to the prairies, um, and we can compare those those flight speeds as well. Yeah, that's funny you brought up that. Um, I was I was reading the the white paper on this, and it has the observational you know, data that's provided, and it has reviewed in Cook 1933. And I just kind of looked at Mike, and I was like. I wonder how they were actually doing that. Like, was, was he just, you know, standing there using two points and kind of doing the math on it? Or, like you said, maybe, you know, in a truck, it sounds like. Or, you know, who knows? But it, I'm sure the new technology has really solidified the uh, the ability to get that, that correct speed, for sure. Yeah, and it gives us a lot more confidence in those estimates, uh, you know. And we can, you know, we monitor on several different individuals. And, uh, you know, you, you can have a fairly robust data set now with these new transmitters and, and be pretty confident that, yeah, they really are, trans, you know, flying at, at this, you know, uh, at this speed. And, you know, they're upwards of 80 kilometers an hour for uh, some of the bigger ducks. And, and it's, uh, it's really interesting. And then, some of the, and then that data can be used to kind of populate some of these energetics mo- energetic models that um, 
folks are using because you know flight is very energetically costly and so knowing how fast and how far uh individuals are flying we can get an estimate of how many calories they're burning and uh, you know going between feeding and roosting areas and and what it's going to take to keep them uh you know health healthy and uh in good shape uh for the breeding season we've talked in previous episodes about how much of the research that is conducted by our waterfowl um, partners across north america invariably in nearly every case has some applied aspect to it it's relevant to conservation and management of the waterfowl resource and and you you address that in the comment that you just that you just provided mike about well you know why is why do we need to know the flight speed of waterfowl anyway it's a neat little trivia and uh, trivia question but as you've just described it has real application too in in these bioenergetic models we haven't introduced those formally on a on an episode yet but uh, but they are the the foundation for the habitat conservation objectives that uh, that are put in place by uh, joint ventures, regional joint venture partnerships. We had Dale Humberg on to talk about that, about what those joint ventures are, and so they use all these science-based models to figure out how much habitat they need to be providing. And you know, the, these energetic models are really an important piece of that. And how much birds are flying, how fast they're flying, as you've described, all of that matters. Now, one thing I will pause here and ask you to do is translate. What, what was it you said, 85 kilometers per hour or 80 kilometers per hour? Translate that to miles per hour for me, please. <laughs> so, so we're probably probably looking, I, I don't have it right in front of me right now, but I'd say, you know, uh, mallards are, I think, uh, what we were looking at, mallards and pinto were flying f- fairly fast and right around that 60, uh, 60 mile an hour mark. How many species did you, uh, were you able to estimate flight speeds for? trying to think back i think we threw one cinnamon teal in there because uh we were just starting our data on cinnamon teal and we just had uh had gotten one estimate for cinnamon teal but we had cinnamon teal and mallard and gadwall and widgeon so um and uh oh actually and i think we did have some northern shoveler in there too now now here yeah do you remember uh, how those speeds fell out among species i I looked at that paper last week but i can't can't recall the the bigger ducks are faster and the the smaller ducks are a little bit slower um i think that's the general gradient um you can correct me if i'm wrong i don't have it sitting in front of me but uh, that that's the the trend it surprisingly looked like the you know shoveler moved pretty quick that's uh that's interesting. Yes. And those were, you were able to get like uh, flight speeds over for migratory events as well as short, shorter distance movements. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, basically um, the, it's a little harder to get those shorter distance movements because um, if you, if you're only getting a location every uh, say 30 minutes, um you know, if they finish their movement, let's they let's say they fly for 28 of those minutes uh, and maybe land a little early, you're going to estimate a, a little bit slower flight speed. Um, whereas the the migratory flights, you know, they tend to they'll fly for hours and hours at a time. So, um, uh, you know, you you have much less a chance of getting any like uh, on the ground time um, with, with those flights. You weren't able to then estimate flight speed as green wing teal are approaching and buzzing your decoys versus mallards when they're coming. <laughs> no, but you know, I, I'm not going to put that past us. I think uh, that's definitely going to be uh, something that we'll look at uh, going forward. We 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 just marked green wing teal, which I, I think are the first green wings that have been marked with G, GPS GSM transmitters. Uh, we marked some this uh, past September, 
Um, and they're doing really well, and we're getting a lot of data from those. So I'll be looking forward to reporting some flight speeds for Greenwing soon, too. You've mentioned it a few times, and I just want to pause right here just to ensure folks know what we're talking about. When you say GPS, GSM, the GPS is the global positioning system. You get that level of precision around the location. And the GSM, I don't know what GSM stands for, but it's basically that cellular um, cellular tower network. These things uh, record GPS level uh, locations, accuracy of uh, locations, and they communicate that information back to you through the cell towers i know we've covered that in detail on the previous episode but in case anyone's listening to this for the first time um, so just want to make sure we're clear on that uh, anything else exciting or noteworthy from that uh from that study on the flight speed uh you know i think um we're, we're really excited to now incorporate that in with uh the joint venture and that that's you know using those estimates and some of the other estimates for some of the movement stuff that we're finding working closely with the joint venture as you mentioned um uh, mark petrie out here uh, from ducks unlimited has just uh done a phenomenal job with uh, some of the the, the um habitat uh uh, mapping and, and, uh, predictions for, you know, how much, how much habitat and energy is needed, um, to support the waterfowl populations and has worked closely with our central Valley joint venture to do that. And so we're looking forward to working with Mark on that and, uh, really incorporating that in and hopefully, uh, you know, be able to apply the, the information that we've learned. Hey, Mike, I've got one quick question, just kind of thumbing through the, the study. What was the significance of the, uh, and you may have said this, but what is the significance of the migratory flight versus the non-migratory flight as far as the data set? You know, what, what, what are you using the info for the non-migratory flight speed? Yeah, so um, really trying to get, like, basically that's like um, the non-migratory flights would be these, these daily flights that are, uh, you know, occurring in the, in the wintertime um, down here in California, at least. Um, that was the focus of our, our data set. And, and so you're getting an idea, you know, how fast they're flying and, and the distances flown uh, from, you know, feeding to roosting sites. And so that uh, it's more of a, it's that localized daily um, kind of a flight speed as opposed to these, you know, uh, one or, you know, one week or two week uh uh, migratory um, periods where they're migrating, say, from California to, the, to Alberta to, to NAFT. But that information is useful in those bioenergetic models, the same as the migration. Yeah, it's kind of that local distribution so. information yeah. that would be. Yeah, I'd almost say it's more, it's, um, I mean, to me, it's almost more interesting is because you were, we're looking at how much energy is on the landscape in the Central Valley. Uh, it's like, you know, they always use the analogy of setting the table, um, you know, how much food energy is out there in either rice and wetland plant, uh, you know, in the marshes. And is there enough to sustain the number of birds for the, you know, given the activities that they're doing? And so this is shedding light on those activities, those flights and those movements on a daily basis. So um, really helping inform that kind of that long term winter, uh, you know, management of, of waterfowl in the Central Valley. The Ducks Unlimited Expo, May 15th, 16th, and 17th, 2020 at the Texas Motor Speedway in Fort Worth, Texas. Interactive villages, shooting, archery, dogs, fishing, kayak, canoe, 4x4 off-road tracks, ATV, UTV track, industry experts, demonstrations, exhibitors, and more. The Ducks Unlimited Expo, everything outdoors. The ultimate playground for the outdoor enthusiast. The Ducks Unlimited Expo. Visit www.duckexpo.com. 
One other question. I'm just curious. You're probably seeing some pretty fascinating migratory flight times too. Um, what are some of the just one numbers that kind of jump out at you that, that you guys looked at and you're like, holy moly, this bird flew from here to here in this amount of time? Yeah, I mean, they'll average, eight, you know, 75 kilometers an hour over a 13, 14, 15-hour period, no problem. And it's just, you know, that, that expenditure, expenditure of energy, you know, is just, it's just, it's pretty amazing. And, and they're out, you know, flying, you know, over mountain ranges and over oceans and, and uh, you know, and getting from point A to point B in an amazingly uh, short amount of time. Yeah, that's that's pretty impressive. It it really it really is incredible to to think about how much more we're able to understand or just observe uh, with respect to some of the you might even say weird things that waterfowl do when they're flying around during winter. Mike, I don't know if you've seen any of these type of uh, shocking movements, but talk to partners and researchers that are doing some of this work along the Gulf Coast or in the Mississippi Alluvial Valley, whether it be with geese or mallards, pintails, whatever the case may be, but they'll tell stories of some of these birds just flying, and, and a lot of it has to do I shouldn't say a lot of it, but occasionally the story involves the start of the hunting season. The birds will be relatively sedentary. They'll just be kind of moving around. And then the hunting season opens, and then these birds just start making these erratic movements or else these long-distance movements, sometimes traversing out across the Gulf of Mexico like they're trying to fly to the Yucatan. Then they turn around and, and come back, or they go to Texas and then Alabama. Just some crazy movements that we never would have, never before would have been able to document without the advent. Of, of you know at least satellite-based telemetry now we're able to do it in a much finer spatial and temporal scale with these new types of of, of units but do you guys have y'all seen any of those crazy i call them crazy unexpected movements uh, out among your birds yeah we we do see a lot of that and and um i i don't want to get into too much detail because we're working it up right now but we have one um study where we looked at we basically looked at about 25 birds uh, before uh, the opening day, a couple weeks before opening day of the hunting season here, and we got you know two minute data, uh, two minute location data for a 24 hour period on those, and then on opening morning we uh, you know we turned them back on basically around midnight to get that two minute data again, and uh, and then compare it two weeks into the season. So we have three data points on on several several birds, uh, mostly pintail. And how they react and to that disturbance of of the hunting season. It's just, um, and and what we're seeing is, you know, so there's some you know really interesting movements and that you would never see if you just uh, if you just had one or two locations a day, is which was you know the old way of gathering telemetry data. You get you know one or two shots uh, a day, um, and and now we're seeing yeah some really uh, some really interesting movements um, and then. What I think, uh, you know, and I don't want to get out, uh, you know, ahead of my uh, ski, ski tips here, but um, I think what we see is the birds make a very quick adjustment, and it doesn't take long um, before they get it figured out. Like, you know, in some instances, it's just a matter of uh, hours uh, where they figure it out. And, you know, the ones that don't figure it out may end up, you know, on the barbecue, uh, but uh, most of them do. I and mean, we had, of all those birds, I think we had one bird um, of the ones that we were able to to monitor at that level, just one of our birds was uh, harvested. Are you seeing, and maybe you can't uh, share this, but are you seeing birds do any kind of movement from the Central Valley of California 
uh, into the Intermountain West, let's say midwinter, or do they go from the Central Valley down to Mexico midwinter? Um, or is that is that part of the research that you're working up now? It is, um, and uh, you know, we we're not seeing. I could certainly share that. We're, you know, we're not seeing a lot of um, of those types of movements. Um, you know, we, we have uh, cinnamon teal marked across the West right now. Uh, we marked them in seven Western states. And, and you know, the cinnamon teal that we mark in California tend to stay in California. We've had a few move down into Mexico. We had our first one actually move into Mexico from California, whereas most of the other states that we marked, the cinnamon teal, had representative teal mar- uh, move down into Mexico uh, over the winter. Um, so the birds we mark in California, I think, you know, they tend to, you know, they tend to like it here. They tend to stay pretty local during the winter months. And then, um, obviously with the pintail and the widgeon and the shoveler, they're all migrating north to, to, uh, to breed. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I know we, we do see some movements out. It's not, not quite as much as I had expected. I mean, we, I do, I could share with you, uh, you know, we, we marked some pintail, so we marked a, a pintail, a female pintail here in the wintertime. Uh, you know, uh, when we say winter, you know, like we marked her in September. She spent the winter here, then went up to Alberta, um, Saskatchewan to breed. And then the next winter, she spent it down on the Gulf Coast, uh, you know, and she was down pretty much as far south on the Gulf South tip of Louisiana down there uh, as she could go. And then she, the next uh, summer breeding up in the Canadian prairies again, and then decided to winter in California. So she's uh, hopping back and forth between flyways, uh, you know, between, between winters and, 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 you know, breeding uh, seasons and, and just, you know, didn't really expect to see the banning data didn't indicate that we'd see much of that. And uh, that's been kind of a, you know, an eye opening uh, thing to look at. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. And I was going to, I was going to ask you that question. If you had some of your, uh, some of your ducks that were jumping flyways. Uh, we had one a couple of years ago that was reported, actually someone in our Sacramento office there, like brother-in-law or something, had harvested a banded bird in the Central Valley, but it was from Japan. So hmm. um, kind of a cool, cool story there. That that thing had done some traveling for sure. Um, but I was just, you know, going to ask if you, if you have some of your pintails or, or any species kind of hopping flyways and going some odd places that you wouldn't expect, because I'm sure you see that. It sounds like you do. Yeah, I know. We absolutely do. And, the, and these transmitters have given us the ability to see it probably even more than, you know, ever before. Um, we definitely have a, a strong connection to, um, you know, to, to Russia um, a lot with some of the geese that we've marked. Obviously, going to Wrangell Island, um, Russia is a, is a common spot for the snow geese here in California. Um, we had one of our hand pintail look like she nested in, um, in uh, Siberia this last uh, breeding season. Um, so we have, we have these jumps between flyaways, between continents, uh, and, you know, a definite connection, uh, on some of these coastal areas with, uh, you know, getting over, we didn't, we haven't seen any in Japan, but, but Russia certainly is a common, uh, uh, spot for some of the pintail and, uh, snow geese. Some of the Ross geese, uh, Ross geese that we marked here in the central valley, they, you know, they go up. Uh, into their breeding breeding areas in the in the, in the Arctic, and then down to um, and then spend the next uh, uh, winter have been down more in the Central Flyway in, uh, in you know Colorado and uh, through the Central Flyway states. Um, so we see switching the flyways for those geese is, is pretty common as well. Mike, are y'all 
marking mostly females or is there a mix of males in there with your sample? Uh, you know, we, we tend to, because we, you know, the sample size is limited and we try and stay consistent. So we end up tending to, to go towards females because we want to, we always want to know where they're nesting and, and, and females tend to, you know, adult females tend to be, you know, usually the main driver in populations, waterfowl populations in terms of population size. So, so we tend to, you know, uh, you know, get, have a higher proportion of females marked. Um, and, and then also for like here for, um, in California, we're, we're also working on the, our local nesters. And so for those, we're catching them on nests. So obviously it's, it's all, all female. So the mallard and fem, uh, mallard and gadwall, um, for, uh, populations that we mark are primarily females. Mal, we do mark some drake mallards. We have not marked any drake gadwall yet. Um, they're just hard to, hard to catch, uh, and, uh, not on nest, obviously. Yeah. Gadwall are a species that, that has stymied researchers in the southeastern U.S. for quite a while. With you know, with, in that regard, they're they're uh, they're difficult to catch, uh, difficult to study to study with telemetry. Um, so I hope y'all figure that out. Another question I had for you is whether any of the birds you captured and marked during the winter ended up nesting in California. You talked about the birds that you you captured and marked on the nest as local nesters. Did any any other birds stick around that you ca- captured in winter? Uh, that's a good question. I'm trying to think. Um, I think primarily the the and it, it it really is it's sort of a self fulfilling prophecy because for the most part when we're marking um, when we say winter our winter capture is just prior to the hunting season so it's really August September and we're marking the birds as you know wigeon uh, American wigeon and, and pintail and shoveler as they arrive and um, I think for the most part, none of those have uh, stayed to to breed in in California. We've had a few of the male pintail hang out and stay over the course of the breeding season and not, you know, maybe travel as far north as, you know, the Klamath Basin um, and not not all the way up to the prairies. But for the most part, the females that we marked in the fall, you know, the non-mallard and non-gadwall, they they tend to to nest in in the other regions and migrate. Mike, we haven't even haven't even touched on this other study that y'all recently completed, or, or uh, it's a, a data analysis and, and publication y'all produced that you, or the data came from the, the telemetry that you're describing. This high spatial resolution, high temporal resolution data, you're able to understand these real fine scale movements of waterfowl, uh, fine scale habitat use, and uh, and I know that research was pretty interesting. You found some things that were a bit unexpected. Uh, so maybe in just a couple of minutes, what were the take homes from that? You know, traditionally we've studied waterfowl and we've uh, these habitat use questions, and we thought they, you know, they moved over large areas, but uh, from my reading of that study, y'all found something a little bit different, didn't you? Yeah, we did. We 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 expected to see some pretty good, you know, pretty large scale movements. You know, obviously, these, the ducks have the ability to f- fly great distances relatively quickly, as we show with the flight speed paper. Um, but uh, what we found was, you know, for the most part, um, their daily movements were were quite small, like um, you know, less than. Pintail of, of the the birds we looked at, pintail, mallard, and gadwall. Um, the pintail moved the most, um, and and mallard and gadwall less than that, um, but still not very much. I mean, less than on a on an average 24-hour day, if you uh, added up uh, location, a distance moved between every every 30 minutes, 
it was less than 12 kilometers, I think, for Pintail on average, um, or right around 12 kilometers, and and much, and then you know significantly less than that for Mallard and Gadwall, and so you know we just didn't see the amount of movement um, that we thought we would see, and based on some of our other previous VHF telemetry work. Um, you know, we th- we thought we'd see a little bit greater movement. And I think there's there's a couple quick explanations for that. And, you know, one is that you know uh, all the work from all the partners doing you know doing some really good habitat work and creating habitat and spreading it out uh, around the, the Central Valley. Um, you know, we're providing a, a pretty decent habitat base. They're not having to move as far as we you might might expect to to get the resources that they need. Um, and uh, you know, and then the 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 conditions here in California are pretty nice. It's, you know, a Mediterranean climate. So, uh, you know, it's, there's not a lot of, um, weather events that are causing the birds that, you know, that force them to move. That's a, the whole intersection between waterfowl movements and weather is a, is an entirely different topic. We had Matt Kaminsky on and he was giving me, uh, on a previous episode and he was kind of giving me the lowdown on what he looks for in terms of weather patterns that make waterfowl move. And so maybe we'll, we'll get you back on at some other point to discuss some, some, uh, some of the other findings coming out of your research as well to delve a little bit, uh, in, in more depth on the the whole weather, uh, how weather influences those movements. I'd love to hear more about that as informed by some of your telemetry. Um, so before we, before we conclude, I want, to, I want to emphasize again the point that we made at the end of the previous episode that if, if a hunter harvests one of these birds, uh, has a telemetry in it or attached to it, they're not going to get in trouble. We encourage them, we implore them we, you know, to, to report that bird, report it to the bird banding lab because it's going to have one of the other standard aluminum leg bands, but then also to report it to whomever the researcher is that's doing this, the research using that, that transmitter should it have one. Uh, and then the information, that contact information is usually going to be on a separate leg band or it's going to be on the transmitter itself. And uh, Mike, as you were describing on that previous episode, uh, Usually the researchers will go out of their way to provide addition to provide detailed information on what that bird did, uh, provide a dummy transmitter, uh, but most importantly, the hunter's not in trouble. The hunter is to be thanked for re- returning that, reporting that, and uh, like we do with bands, we urge all hunters and, and that, that encounter these birds to, uh, to return the device, call it in. Yeah, I appreciate that plug. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, definitely was second all the, uh, everything you just said. Thanks, Mike, for joining us. Uh, it's been my pleasure. I think thank you guys for uh, getting the word out on all the work we're doing, and I uh, really appreciate it. Special thanks to our guest on this episode, Mike Casadza, research wildlife biologist with USGS out in California. I also thank my co-host Chris Jennings for joining us on this episode, and as always, Clay Baird, our producer, who does a great job getting us out to you, our listeners. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us. Thanks for sharing your time with us. Uh, let us know how, how we're doing. Let us know what you think of the podcast. You can, you can submit comments at dupodcast at ducks.org uh, or submit comments wherever you get your podcast. Let us know how we're doing. And thanks, as always, for your commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Ducks.